Today on Inside Politics, a crisis across the water's edge disrupts the campaign here at home. President Biden pinning the blame on Republicans for the fall of the Ukrainian city, while Donald Trump tries to make himself a martyr after the suspicious death of a Kremlin critic. Plus, with friends like these, Joe Biden facing a new call to step aside as a prominent columnist says he's a great president, but he shouldn't run again. And this is not my house. Brand new CNN reporting on why so many top Republicans are asking how did they get here and deciding not to run again. I'm Jessica Dean in for Dana Bash today. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. First up today, a battlefield loss abroad triggers a blame game on American soil. Joe Biden saying House Republicans are responsible for the fall of a critical city in eastern Ukraine to a staggering Russian advance. Also today, pressure on Vladimir Putin to release Alexei Navalny's body so the world can assess what caused his death inside a Russian jail. Already, the American president saying he has no doubts Putin and his thugs are behind the Kremlin critic's death. We start our coverage with CNN's Arlette Sines, who's at the White House. And Arlette, we just heard from the president a short time ago. What's he saying this morning? Well, Jess, President Biden once again expressed disbelief that House Republicans have yet to pass additional aid for Ukraine at a critical time in their battle against Russia. This took on heightened significance last week after the death of Alexei Navalny in a Russian prison, something President Biden specifically says Vladimir Putin is responsible for. But uh, this all comes as the president and Democrats are trying to use this moment to pressure Republicans to pass this additional assistance for Ukraine. The president last week, week ex expressed frustration that the House went on a two-week break. And earlier today, in an exchange with our colleague MJ Lee, he said it's shocking that Republicans have yet to act. Take a listen. Mr. President, would you go as far as to say that Alexei Navalny's blood is on the hands of House Republicans right now? Well, I would use that term. They're making a big mistake not responding. Look. The way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations, it's just shocking. Now, in that moment with reporters, the president said he's also considering additional sanctions against Russia in the wake of Navalny's death. But he also didn't uh, project any confidence that Navalny's death would nudge along those House Republicans who are skeptical about aid for Ukraine. This all comes as the administration for months now has warned that Ukraine would be significantly hampered on the battlefield if they were not to get this additional uh, funding. And President Biden over the weekend held a phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and the White House says that in that phone call, he specifically cited the withdrawal of Ukrainian troops from that key town in Ukraine as evidence that they need this additional assistance. The president said uh, that he wasn't fully confident that more uh, towns wouldn't fall uh, since they are facing these ammunition shortages. But the president, even as he is pushing these Republicans to get on board with this aid, he's running up against the political reality that there is a small group of House Republicans who do, do not want want to bring this up for a vote. Now, the president was asked whether he would be willing to meet with House Speaker Mike Johnson. He said he would if Johnson would be willing to talk about anything. Uh, but it really remains unclear what this fate of Ukraine aid will look like with the House so far not bringing it up for a vote, uh, even as President Biden is consistently pushing for Republicans to do so.
All right, Arlette signs for us at the White House. Thanks so much for that reporting. Also internationally today, anger and disbelief directed toward the United States and Republicans in Congress who have blocked that new aid to Ukraine so far. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in southern Ukraine. And Nick, very few, few European leaders are really holding back and assigning blame to Republican refusal to fund Ukraine's war of survival here. Yeah, absolutely. And that fall of Avdivka has, by a local commander at the least, uh, speaking today, been blamed entirely on the lack of shells, essentially a lack of that $60 billion that can pay for that ammunition, and also a lack of uh, individuals, too, of troops. That's a separate issue Ukraine is facing, partly financial, but really down to the extraordinary casualties it has slowly been facing and its desire to slow down mobilizing further parts of its population. But the fall of Avdivka, be it in no mistake, Jessica, is is an exceptionally key moment, not just because it's been fought over for a decade since Russia first invaded in 2014 and more ferociously in the past months, yet another town that Russia is willing to throw thousands, it seems, of troops at and lose them in the fighting uh, in order to gain something of a minor strategic advantage. I should remind you that President Zelensky of Ukraine said that for every Rus uh, Ukrainian that died, seven Russians died, uh, but because it possibly, in the minds of many Ukrainians, heralds the beginning of uh, the difficulties they're going to face because of a lack of ammunition, because of that $60 billion being held up in Congress. Just a side note here, we're in Kherson uh, and the lights are off every night pretty much for the fear of drones and Russian shelling. That's why it's pretty dark behind me. But that's a stark reminder that it's far away from those political games in Washington. It's very much a life and death situation here. And the Ukrainians now deeply concerned about where it may fall next. Avdivka this weekend, Zelensky himself in Kupiansk, further north near Kharkiv, trying to shore up troops there. They fear they may be next for resurgent Russia. Indications in the south near Robotina. That's a tiny village that was one of the main gains, tiny as it was at the southern counter-offensive in the summer. That's under Russian pressure too. So are some villages near Bakhmut. The list frankly goes on and it may well be that in the weeks ahead I'm again speaking to you about the fall of another town hard fought over. Russia seems to have the wind in its sails at this point and that may be because they've seen how clearly the western aid is just not coming. That's damaging morale but more importantly it's practically damaging Ukraine on the front lines here, Jessica. Right, we're seeing it unfold in real time. All right, thanks so much, Nick Payton Walsh for us in Ukraine. Let's bring in our panel on this. We have CNN's MJ Lee, CNN's Jeff Zeleny, and CNN's Kylie Atwood. Great to have you all on this President's Day. And uh, MJ, I want to start with you on the President. We heard you there, Arlette, reporting from the White House, your question to the President earlier today about does he have, or do Republicans have blood on their hands with this, with stalling on, on funding to Ukraine? And, and he stopped short of saying that. Stopped short of saying that, but did say that it was a big mistake that House Republicans were making by not uh, approving and moving forward with this national security package that would give uh, tens of billions of dollars in additional aid to Ukraine. Uh, you know, I think the president uh, didn't really sound optimistic at all when I asked him uh, in a second question, do you think Navalny's death will end up making a difference, essentially, and prompting House Republicans to take action? He said, I hope so, but he just wasn't sure that anything was going to change. And that is just the stubborn reality that the president is grappling with right now. Uh, the fact that House Speaker Johnson and a small group of House Republicans are not willing to go there. And obviously, what House Speaker Johnson is dealing with is his own uh, political future. He knows how tricky it is to bring up something that doesn't include border security. And that's why we've been 
stuck in the same place for really months now. And may continue to be struck, uh, stuck. I want to listen to what Senator J.D. Vance said over the weekend. And then, Jeff, I want to ask you about the Republican Party when it comes to national security. Let's listen to that first. His death is a tragedy. I don't think that he should have been in prison. I don't think that he should have been killed in prison. And I condemn uh, Putin for doing it. But here's the problem. It doesn't teach us anything new about Putin. We, I mean, I've, I've never once argued that Putin is a kind and friendly person. We don't have to agree with him. We don't have to, we, we can contest him, and we often will contest him. Uh, but, but the fact that he's a bad guy does not mean we can't engage in basic diplomacy. So again, Jeff, releasing a member of the Republican Party downplaying Navalny's death, downplaying the role that Vladimir Putin might have played within it. And it speaks to a broader schism that we have seen unfold right before our very eyes within the Republican Party, which used to be so well known uh, for national security issues. That was one of the things they really hung their hat on. Democrats had to convince people that they were the ones that could you know, keep America safe abroad. Are you surprised to see this playing out? And do you think this will continue to really be more pervasive within the Republican Party? In the Trump era, it's not surprising. Uh, I mean, a decade ago, absolutely it's surprising. Uh, in the, the Bush administration, it would have been surprising. I didn't cover ones before that, but certainly it would have been surprising in the Reagan administration. But look, even Senator Vance there, uh, downplaying and underscoring it, has said much more than Donald Trump. He has not said anything about... Uh, that this was Vladimir Putin uh, doing this. So I think it is just a remarkable uh, transition, really. Uh, and it's coming after America's longest wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There was um, dramatic fatigue in that respect. And Donald Trump tapped into that and has really kept it going. But it uh, is raising so many questions about what comes next. It's hard to imagine um, that uh, this would have happened, uh, you know, even... Uh, four or five years ago, during the Obama administration, for example, you know, if some Democrats also raised some questions about um, some of this funding, they would have been excoriated by the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So it just really shows you uh, it, it has uh, uh, changed the lineup of these parties. But when the president did not say the blood on your hands thing, I thought that was so striking. To me, it sounded like he still wanted to make a deal. He still wanted to get mm -hmm. House Republicans on board with this uh, sort of a legislative uh, mindset there. You have to wonder if he thinks that, but he right. certainly didn't uh, say it. But such a good question. But like a great question and trying to hold out hope maybe that, that they right. can still get there. You, you brought up Donald Trump and how he fits into all of this. Let's read what he said. This is his first mention of Navalny, and it still doesn't quite directly get at anything. Uh, writing on uh, Truth Social, the sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. It is a slow, steady progression with crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors and judges leading us down a path to destruction. He went on to say, we are a nation in decline, a failing nation. Uh, Kylie, this is, again, the first thing he said about Navalny days after the fact. Uh, you know, how is he trying to use this politically as he runs for another term? It's really just bizarre to watch. He's making comments about it. He also made, you know, a completely unfounded comment that in some way compared him seeing political persecution here in the United States to Navalny seeing political pers persecution in Russia, which, you know, is a comparison uh, that has no actual reality to it. Um, but it's also not altogether surprising if we saw the way that Trump acted uh, when he was president. You know, he had a relationship with President Putin. There were always concerns about that relationship. And so that's really starting to come back to the fore now. And I think 
the one person that has benefited from this is Nikki Haley. You see the Republicans on the Hill kind of contorting themselves in different positions, trying to stay on the side of Trump, but also trying to be, uh, you know, backers of NATO. And then you see Nikki Haley just really batting it out of the ballpark in such that she's not only saying that Trump has to answer if Putin is to blame for Navalny's death, but also saying Trump has to answer if it's okay for Putin to be killing his critics. If, you know, there's just saying that there's a lot more there. And I think reminding the American public of the challenges that Trump has faced when it comes to his relationship with Russia. All right, you mentioned Nikki Haley. We're going to talk about her. We're going to take a quick break first. What's red, gold, and blue all over? Donald Trump hawking $400 high tops as Nikki Haley fights for survival in South Carolina. We'll talk about it next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In the final days before South Carolina's make-or-break primary, Donald Trump is on the trail trying to spin a whopping $355 million civil fraud ruling against him. Meanwhile, his opponent, Nikki Haley, wasting no time slamming the former president, saying she doesn't think Trump can win a general election due to his legal troubles. CNN's Kristen Holmes joining us now. Kristen, of course, you have been covering the president. Uh, just more of the same, trying to spin all of this into something positive as he heads into this primary. That's right. We're just days away. And just one thing to note is that Donald Trump has been in South Carolina exactly one time since the New Hampshire primary, which might go to show you how confident he feels in that state. When we talk about Nikki Haley talking about a general election, whether or not Trump is actually able to run in a general election, she's going to have to get through South Carolina first. And right now, despite the fact that Donald Trump has only been in the state once since New Hampshire, despite the fact that he has mounting legal problems and fees now, legal fees that are more than $400 million, he still appears to be leading in the polls by double digits and some polls showing him with a 30 point lead. And she's been campaigning almost daily there, holding multiple events a day. Now, she is lashing out at the former president, saying that America can do better than both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. Take a listen. When it comes down to it, you have a choice. Do we want more of the same or do we want to go in a new direction? More of the same is not just Joe Biden, more of the same is Donald Trump. And if you look at where we are, do we really need to say the best we can do are two 80-year-old candidates? Because we need someone who can serve eight years, fully disciplined, no drama, no vendettas, just results and getting work done for the American people. So we talked about Donald Trump and his messaging. He was in Michigan over the weekend and trying to spin again his legal problems as election interference. But he was also in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, launching a new money making venture. He was launching a new series of golden sneakers called Never Surrender Sneakers. Now, I do want to be clear here. These at four hundred dollars a pair are still exorbitantly expensive. However, 
you know, we're hearing a lot of comparisons. Oh, he's doing this to raise money for his legal bills. He owes over $400 million in fines. That is a lot of pairs of sneakers that he is going to have to sell if he wants to even chip away at that number. That's something he says he's wanted to do for a long time. But it really goes to show you Donald Trump is good at using his name as a brand to make money. But also, as we've seen, he is also good at losing money as well. That's right. All right, Kristen Holmes for us. We're going to talk about the sneakers more in just a second. Thanks so much. In the meantime, our excellent reporters are back with me. Before we get to that, Kylie, you have been on the trail with Nikki Haley. We're now just five days away from that primary in her home state of South Carolina. So much on the line for her. Set the scene for everyone, uh, what you're hearing from your sources as we head into this final stretch. Well, I think one interesting thing to look at from Nikki Haley is the expectations that she's set for herself in South Carolina. After New Hampshire, she told folks that she needed to do better in South Carolina than she did New Hampshire. She was 11 points behind Trump there. Then in weeks following that, she was a little bit less uh, committed to doing that well in South Carolina, just saying that she needed to show momentum. And then just this morning, she said on Fox and Friends that she expects it to be close. She expects it to be competitive in South Carolina. So I think there's probably a reason that she's saying that this morning. Typically, if you're a candidate, you don't get out there and say you think it's close unless you're seeing internal polls that suggest that. But really, the stakes couldn't be higher for her because if she does lose to him by 30 plus points, and that's where she is in most of the recent polls, uh, there will be real questions about the capability for her campaign to have a future beyond this. To continue on, and then we head into Super Tuesday, of course, which are so many states that are just primed for Trump to do really, really well. Uh, we've also heard her going even more directly at the former president. Let's, let's listen to a few of those clips. It's amazing to me how weak in the knees he is when it comes to Putin. I think Trump is mentally diminished. Donald Trump cannot win a general election. How many more times do we have to lose before we finally figure out that he's the problem? So, Jeff, we started covering this primary where everyone was very careful to not criticize. And that's been a big talking point amongst a lot of people in D.C. Right? Oh, okay, they just need to go right after him. It'll make a huge difference. Is it enough at this point what she's saying now that she is more going much more directly at him? I mean, we'll find out. It's really been a, a crescendo uh, starting at, uh, as you said, barely anything at all. Uh, to now, it's pretty loud. Uh, but one of the challenges throughout all of this, the loudest voices against former President Donald Trump didn't do so well. Exhibit A, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, we can go on. Mm -hmm. uh, Ron DeSantis in the end, as you know, logging so many miles on the road with him. But look, I think she still uh, has a limited um, sort of uh, segment of the Republican Party that's available to her. Uh, she's going after moderates and other things. One thing that may be a little bit unusual about South Carolina, there's not party registration by party. So they are hoping that there are enough of the new moderates who have moved into the Charleston area, the Seacoast area. There's been a dramatic population shift. It's actually the fastest growing state the census estimated last year. So a lot of people were not there when she was governor. That can sort of work both ways. A lot of people moved down to South Carolina during COVID, but that's what they're kind of holding out hope for. But the bigger question is, how long does she stay in this race? Does she want to be a thorn in his side, a backup plan, an insurance policy for the Republican Party, or perhaps all of the above? Right. And we'll find out this week. The, the resources to do it. Uh, and, and then you start to look at, at her opponent. Uh, Kristen mentioned the, the sneakers, MJ, the golden sneakers, uh, the never surrender and high top sneakers, as he now needs to pay $355 million uh, in that ruling. It really struck, struck me, though, when Kristen was talking about just how he operates, his brand, putting his name on things, the shiny gold, all of it. Just such a contrast to Joe Biden, right? And yet, 
so many people are tired of kind of hearing about both of them, frankly, in this in this 2.0 race we have. Yeah, and I think what you said is totally right, that this is completely on brand for Donald Trump. Uh, the fixation on his own name, seeing his name on something, and also monetizing his own name. Uh, we don't know yet exactly where the proceeds from the sneaker sales will go, but certainly we do know that his legal bills have been uh, significant and he does need to uh, make up for that. And yeah, that contrast between uh, former President Trump and current uh, President uh, Joe Biden, they have been just so stark and very much on display, uh, no matter sort of what the issue is. We were talking in the last block about the reaction to uh, Alexei Navalny's death. I mean, that in and of itself has uh, been so uh, sort of key in drawing those highlights between the two uh, general election candidates, uh, seeing their responses. Like, yeah, it couldn't be more clear that you have a Democrat who operates one way and then a Republican and really a unique candidate that operates in a totally, totally different totally way. Different way. And, and as Kylie was saying in the break, who knows how many people will be wandering around in those sneakers? Well, you know, how, how those will play. <laughs> the front rows of his rallies, I'm sure will I'm be sure full we'll be of those sparkling with them. The Very same shiny. people who drank Trump vodka and, <laughs> That's right. and there's a the litany steaks. of Yeah, you could have right. All the of hats. that. The hats. Right, for Started sure. with the hats. Uh, we also heard from the former Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, who, of course, didn't was unsparing in a lot of his criticism about Donald Trump, especially after January 6th. You'll remember in his testimony to the committee, he called uh, his fraud lies crazy, amateurish, total nonsense. Nonsense. But he also said on the 16th, voting for Trump is playing Russian roulette with the country. Voting for Biden is outright national suicide. And Jeff, it, it's just further proof that the Republican Party continues. We see this on the Hill, in the Senate, all, already on the House, but even more in the Senate, just to continue to rally around the former president, knowing uh, for, everything. For sure. I mean, the reality is the vast majority of voters will put their jerseys on. And if they vote at all, which is another separate question, but they'll put their jerseys on and vote Republican, whether they like Trump or not. Uh, Mitch McConnell is exhibit A of this. I mean, he is someone who obviously has many differences with the uh, former president. But during the Trump administration, huge strides in terms of appointing conservative justices. Look at the Supreme Court. So that's what people uh, sort of see as the greater good about his potential election. But again, I think the bigger point is that slice of voters right in the middle. Uh, what will they do? Some will not vote. Uh, there's a third party option. That's why this election is so uncertain. That's right. We talk more about that in just a little bit. Stay with us. Ahead, a New York Times columnist says it's time for Democrats to thank Joe Biden for his service and urge him to make a graceful exit. Do party leaders in Washington agree? It is content guaranteed to get a response from Donald Trump. Today is President's Day, so we have new rankings of every single American president by a collection of academics and historians. They put the 45th president at the very bottom of the new poll. I love how the whole panel is looking very closely to see how this is. They put Trump last there, Abraham Lincoln first, Joe Biden 14th. The professors who compiled the power poll of presidents say Biden owes his standing to his predecessor. Quote, Biden's most important achievements may be that he rescued the presidency from Trump. But the polls for this November's election showing Biden consistently trailing Trump, despite the near universal thumbs down on Trump's legacy from historians all across the aisle. President Biden is facing just token opposition for the Democratic nomination, but with six months until the Democratic convention in Chicago, some Democrats are increasingly worried about him being at the top of the ballot. A piece this weekend by liberal New York Times columnist Ezra Klein crystallized the issue for many in the party. 
The question the Biden administration keeps pretending only to hear. Can Biden do the job of president? But that's not the question of the 2024 campaign. What I think we're seeing is that he is not up for this. And my panel is back with me now. Jeff, these are, I want to say the whispers, but when you talk to Democrats, they are, some of them are yelling that very loudly. It's not the whispers you hear privately and behind the scenes. And yet there doesn't seem to be any indication that Biden will be stepping aside. No, I mean, there, uh, there used to be whispers, even in the um, 2020 campaign, which we all covered. I mean, there were whispers then about age and sort of fitness for office. Uh, it's a whole different uh, time. I mean, the conversations, it's hard to have a conversation with the top Democratic strategist, a lawmaker on Capitol Hill, without part of the conversation being, well, how do you think President Biden's doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the reality here is, as MJ, um, I'm sure, uh, would agree with being at the White House every day, there's zero of this conversation in the among the people uh, who matter. I put Jill Biden at the top of that list, a few other advisors. So this is outside chatter here. And they basically say, Democrats are going to have to sort of suck it up and deal with it. He is going to be the nominee. And once there is a choice, they believe people will come around. That might be true to a point. But the piece that uh, that Ezra was talking about, he believes it should go to the convention throw it open to the wild and sort of see what happens. Because conventions historically are about fighting for the nomination. Uh, There was a big discussion among a lot of strategists and uh, Democrats over the weekend. How dangerous is that? Is it more or less than this? I would be stunned if that would happen, but you have to leave open your mind to the possibility since so many people are talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, MJ, what you think about all this. I mean, the White House does not like these stories. Obviously, no, and particularly because we know that President Biden will read a column like this. He takes very seriously what uh, these kinds of pundits say. The journalists that he will have off the records with those tend to be columnists and these kinds of thinkers. I mean, what Ezra was saying in his column is that basically it isn't too late uh, that people can convince President Biden to basically accept that he isn't going to be the nominee or sort of move aside and then do the crazy thing of going to the convention and whether it be uh, Vice President Kamala Harris or somebody else. But there is room and talent within the party for somebody else to be the nominee. It is, of course, really late. And that would be a wild political scenario. Uh, But I do think that is just like the existential question for Democrats right now and something uh, that I asked President Biden directly last week. I asked him, you know, you yourself, you have said that many other Democrats could defeat Donald Trump. So why do you think it has to be you? And we saw him bristle at that question and say, uh, saying, you know, that is your opinion. Uh, it isn't my opinion. That is the the fact that we get from many, many polls. Yeah, and he, he didn't al- like it. He kind of yelled. He didn't. And, yeah. he, and he also said, uh, the answer is that I am the most qualified person to be president. I think the issue is that there are plenty of Democrats who believe other Democrats can do the job, but it is still sort of the quiet part that most Democrats are not willing to say out loud. Mm-hmm. And I also think, you know, we we have discussions about the conversations happening in Washington, the conversations happening at the White House. I don't cover the White House or the Democratic Party. You know, I'm covering a Republican running for president. I'm covering foreign policy. But I hear conversations all the time from people in multiple different states when it comes to Biden and if he is the best pick for the Democratic Party to be running right now. And so I think um, it's important not to pretend that those are conversations that are created by those of us who are covering uh, the White House and covering Biden. These are real questions that real Americans are actually asking and talking about right yeah, now. Yeah, and, and so to that end, I want to play a clip from, from ABC News with Charlemagne the God and, and what he was saying about Joe Biden. Let's listen. He's just an uninspiring candidate. 
Like, you know, there's nothing about, you know, Joe Biden that makes you want to listen to him. He has no main character energy at all. None. The couch is voter apathy. And, you know, that's that's who everybody is up against in 2024. And right now, right now, it feels like the couch is going to win. Mm. It is, it's such an apt way to kind of lay it out pretty starkly, right? You've got the couch, and, and, and right now the couch is going to win by saying essentially people may just stay home. I mean, the burden is on the Biden campaign, which the president is well aware of this, of drawing that distinction with Donald Trump. I mean, we, our history does not to provide uh, any modern day examples and few uh, examples in our history of such a rematch. But I think the question is, are voters going to be as alarmed as turned off by the former president. Um, I was in Detroit a couple weeks ago and talking to a pastor there who he said, look, Trump doesn't scare people as much mm -hmm. as he used to. Uh, people got through it, they'll get through it. So the burden of the president and his campaign is to make that case to voters why this election matters more than ever before and to draw that distinction. And they have eight and a half months to do right. it. It's like everything almost gets normalized after a period of time, right? They've, they've seen Trump, they know Trump, they're, they're not as afraid of him in a way. Yeah, and to the point about the couch, yeah. um, I think what is really remarkable is that when you talk to Democrats, and I'm talking about Biden supporters, Biden allies, lawmakers who are loyally for uh, President Trump, pre President uh, Biden, excuse me, there's nobody that is saying like they are jazzed about the 2024 election. Nobody is saying I'm really excited that this is going to be another Biden Trump matchup. In fact, it's the total opposite. There's like this sense of dread. They don't want to see that rematch anymore uh, again. And I think it's for a number of reasons. There's obviously a lot of nervous energy about President Biden, uh, a lot of feelings about uh, former President Trump. I also think that there's just a lot of like heaviness in the news right now. Um, it is just a fact that people are wary of, you know, the war in Israel, the war in Ukraine, uh, all of the headlines that they're seeing, like there's real fatigue. And I just think that there is a little bit of a darkness, even among people who are loyal supporters of President Biden. Right. And, and there is just it seems like such a, such a heaviness uh, and like a begrudging acceptance to this is kind of what is happening quickly before we take our break. I do want to mention Michigan, of course, is coming up. And I think that will be a good test um, to see. You have somebody like Rashida Tlaib who is urging Democrats to vote uncommitted to really send a message, Kylie, to, to voters. Uh, Michigan is going to be, of course, a critical battleground state. And it has an interesting makeup of voters that are critical, a critical part to Biden's coalition. And this is a problem for President Biden. I mean, the fact that you have a Democrat pushing Democrats not to vote for the president in one of these early states uh, gets to the meat of the matter that there is not just one issue uh, for President Biden in this campaign right now. And the fact that he's older and people are concerned about that, they're actually policy issues as well that is really driving folks uh, to have concern about voting for him. And so as we see in Michigan, you know, this movement to vote for uncommitted over Biden, I think it crystallizes a challenge for uh, this White House in how they're going to talk about the Israel-Hamas war mm -hmm. in the next few months heading up to this election. Yeah, and MJ, that has to be something that they continue to talk about every day and trying to mold that message and hit the right balance. Oh, yeah, they are uh, very aware of the issues that the ongoing war in Israel has created for the campaign. I mean, you've seen the efforts that the campaign and the White House have been making to try to make sure that they are speaking to and in conversation with uh, with these Arab American leaders. But the reality is, these are pretty or could be pretty hardened views at this point, right? There are young people, there are progressives, there are Arab American uh, voters in that community that are just really furious at what they're seeing happening in Gaza. All right. Thanks so much, you guys. Up next, 
Can the conspiracy theorist with the famous last name hurt Biden with one of the Democratic Party's most important voting blocks? Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. A growing number of black voters weighing their options for 2024, taking a close look at the third-party candidates who may be on the ballot. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. trying to seize on that opening over the weekend, positioning himself as an environmental advocate for the black community. Four out of every five toxic waste dumps in America is in a black neighborhood. The highest concentration of toxic waste dumps in America is the south side of Chicago. The most contaminated zip code in California is East L.A. The largest toxic waste dump in this country is Abiel, Alabama, which is 85% black. And, you know, and, and the, the issues of pollution impact black communities probably worse than any other. CNN's Eva McKend is joining us now at the table. Jeff Zeleny is still here with us. Eva, I want to start first with you because you were with RFK Jr. over the weekend in New York as he made his pitch to black voters. And I'm so curious what your observations were. You know, whether they like it or not, Democrats, I think, are starting to realize that Kennedy is going to be a factor in this contest. The most recent NBC News poll saying that 34 percent of voters would consider voting for Kennedy. And while he is widely criticized for vaccine skepticism, he also has this legacy of environmental activism. And so he's leaning on that in his pitch to black voters, as well as his family legacy of civil rights. Something else that I think that he can lean into is this economic argument. I can't underscore enough how great the economic anxieties are among black voters. So one of the Kennedy supporters that I met at a Black History Month event yesterday uh, in Brooklyn, a Kennedy event, he was telling me that his family business, he almost lost it during the pandemic, the Sugar Hill Club in Brooklyn. And over the years, he's had many Democratic politicians in that restaurant. And he felt like he couldn't lean on them when he needed them most in order uh, in order to, to gain some, some access, some resources. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is what Kennedy is trying to appeal to, some of the vulnerabilities that Democrats have right now. And Jeff, you were with him when he did his launch event. You covered that. So you, you've also seen the crowds kind of react to him. There's kind of this conventional wisdom. I think, oh, is, is he even, he's not even, you know, going to do that much. He won't make that much of a difference. And, and yet, when it could come down to these handful of states and really small margins, that could impact Biden, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, third party uh, candidates are always um, a factor. They certainly were in 2016. But this is a different magnitude of that because it's a third party candidate with a famous last name, really the gold plated name still in Democratic politics uh, to this day. So it's been interesting to watch both the DNC and the Biden campaign initially ignore him entirely. Right. And now really starting to focus on uh, beginning a strategy to uh, really identify him and define him and remind people who may only remember about the uh, environmental activism or the famous name, remind him of other things he said. One of his challenges, I think, will be on foreign policy. Actually, I mean, that is a huge uh, a factor that's driving a lot of young voters and progressive voters, 
uh, how he stands on that. But I think we are going to see uh, negative ads against him, trying to define him in such a way to keep his number down, because that is a huge challenge for President Biden. It was, there was a mobile billboard outside of the event yesterday from the DNC. They also released a statement saying that it's outrageous and offensive that Robert F. Kennedy Jr would claim to be a leader for our community after the damage that he's inflicted. So that was Jamie Harrison, the head of the DNC, saying that. He says, as black Americans suffered disproportionately from COVID, Kennedy Jr. pushed harmful misinformation about the life-saving COVID vaccine and even was ranked as one of the top spreaders of false information on social media. So, Jessica, that kind of telegraphs the argument that we're going to get from Democrats yeah. in response. Yeah, and there is polling, 13% for, for RFK Jr. against Joe Biden and Donald Trump, so not an insignificant number. All right, thanks to both of you. Great to see you. Up next, new CNN reporting on the Republican exodus from the House. Is it worth it? More and more high-profile Republicans are asking themselves that question and deciding the answer is no. CNN's Melanie Zanona out today with a new piece looking at why so many name-brand Republicans are just heading, running even for the exit smell. Uh, she joins us now. What's the consensus about why this is happening? Well, of course, there are a lot of factors that go into a decision like this. It's a very personal decision. Some lawmakers cited family reasons. Others are running for higher office. But one thing that me and my colleague Annie Greer really picked up on was that there is an overwhelming amount of frustration right now with just how dysfunctional the House, particularly the House Republican Conference, has been from all of the chaotic speaker drama to even just the struggle to pass basic procedural votes on the floor. Just take a look at what some members told us on the record here. Ken Buck, one of those members retiring, said, we're not doing serious things. Carlos Jimenez told us, I thought that some of our members would be smarter. Steve Womack, we are fractured. And Don Bacon told me, when you have folks on your own team with their knives out, it makes it less enjoyable. And, you know, it's not just the number of Republicans who are retiring. It is the caliber of the people who are deciding to call it quicks. There are five committee chairmen, chair, chair women and chair men who are deciding to retire. And that includes Kathy McMorris Rogers. She is not even term limited yet on her top post on the Energy and Commerce Committee. That's a very powerful position that some members work their entire careers to achieve. And then also Mike Gallagher. He's only 39 years old, and he was once seen as a rising star in the GOP. So there is a lot of concern right now about a brain drain as these senior members decide to leave and take all of their institutional knowledge with them. And there's also concern about what this means for the governing wing of the GOP as those members decide to exit and its members, hardliners like Bob Good, who are largely blamed for a lot of the turbulence and chaos who are deciding to stick around. Jess. A big, big difference, because to your point, that graphic we just saw, those are some big names who have been there for a very long time and really are responsible for making things go. All right, Melanie Zanona, great reporting. Thanks so much. And thank you for joining Inside Politics today. CNN News Central starts right after this break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.